All right, let's head back to Matthew chapter 8 again this morning. Matthew chapter 8. And we've been here a few weeks, and we'll wrap it up today. So we're in our series, Kingdom Living, working our way through the book of Matthew. And our theme verse is Matthew 6.33. It's on your handout. Not sure if we, yep, we do have it on the screen. So we haven't been saying the theme verse, but it's a wonderful scripture. So let's say this out loud together. You can read along with me if you don't know this. It'd be a great verse to memorize, by the way. But let's read this together. Matthew 6.33, begin. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus' kingdom comes first, and then all of life is ordered underneath it. When you put Christ first, when his kingdom is the priority, it's amazing how the rest of your life will, I would say, order itself, but it's ordered by the Lord. So that's what uh, the book of Matthew is pointing us to. I want to begin with a very interesting account. Now, in Matthew 8 and 9, there, it moves really fast. So last week, we looked at all of the miracles that are recorded in Matthew 8 and 9. And we saw that there are all of these miracles that just happen over and over and over, and it's just one to the next to the next to the next. And we looked at what was that teaching us. It was teaching us that Jesus has power that Jesus has authority. And that was the theme of our message last time. But there's one other theme, at least, that I have seen in these two chapters, and that is the theme of discipleship, the theme of following. And I want to speak to you in the time we have left about kingdom followers. Those of us who have made the commitment that we are going to follow Jesus in his kingdom. So begin with this interesting passage, though. Chapter 8 And I want you to look at verse number 18, Matthew 8 and verse number 18. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, now I want you to see the first key word. He said unto him, go ahead, say it out loud with me, master. Now, how else is that word sometimes translated or used? Master also sometimes is what? Teacher. Yeah, you may even be looking at that, master or teacher. But So this is going to be an important concept. The rabbi comes and says to him, master, I will, next word, Master, I will follow. Now, there should be a time in each person's life where they come to Jesus and they say, Master, I will follow. I will follow. Now, he makes a bold statement, and he says, I will follow you whithersoever thou goest. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus says, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now we, the unwritten part here is, so the man does not follow Jesus. Jesus basically shuts him down. Now he doesn't do this with everyone. With this man, he says, well, I don't think you know what you're asking. Now look at the next account. And another of his, what's the word? Disciples, follower. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, which also means master, sir, master, suffer me first or allow me to go and bury my father. Now, does that seem like a reasonable request? Yes or no? Reasonable request, yes or no? Okay, yes, not a trick question. However, in the context, in the, what most Bible uh, teachers believe is that the man's father was not dead, that he had not died yet, that this is just a statement that as soon as, as, soon as my obligations to my father are met and, and I have buried him, when that time has come, then I will follow you. Now, Jesus replies, 
And he says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Wow. Two people come to Jesus and they say, I'd like to follow you. And instead of just saying, yes, come on, let's get in the boat. Let's go. He gives them a reply that they were not expecting. Now, if you look at your introduction today, I want to point out a couple of things. If you look at the front of your handout, I wrote a couple of things down here for our consideration. What we're speaking of when we talk about kingdom followers is discipleship. We're speaking of discipleship. Now, in ancient times, a disciple was more than a learner. They were a learner, but they were more. He or she would have been a follower. And Jesus had both male and female disciples. As you study the, the life of Jesus, the, the 12 apostles were all men, but the disciples of Jesus were a mixed group. They were men and women that both devoted their entire lives to following Jesus. But it was different. You see, they were not just followers or in the sense of they liked his ideas and they ascribed to his teachings. But in ancient times, a follower or a disciple, they could be known as an imitator. That's an important word. They were imitators of the master. See, there are some teachers who transfer information to their students, even good teachers. And, and in fact, that's, in, a, in a sense, that's what I'm doing today, right? In a sense, what's happening in this moment is I am teaching and proclaiming, preaching the Word of God. So I'm taking this information and I am giving it to you to do with as you please. Now, if I do a good job of teaching, you will walk away with a better understanding. This is not the teaching of that. This is not what Jesus was doing. See, most likely, none of you go through your week, and this is going to seem a little odd, so just forgive me in advance, but most of you never go through your week and you think, boy, you know, as I face this situation, I wonder what uh, Ethan Malachuk would do in this scenario right here. That's probably not your thought process. Travis is giving me a little more credit back there. I appreciate it, but I appreciate it. That's probably not what's going on. However, in ancient times, that was the relationship of teacher and master. They didn't just dispense information, but the people attached themselves to the teacher, to the master. And they not only, the master not only transferred information, but the master would transfer his very identity to the students, to the followers. And for that reason, they wouldn't just show up for class. They would walk together everywhere. They would spend every day with each other. And the goal of the student over time was for their life to closely resemble the life of their master. The disciple assumes the identity of the master. This is a very close relationship. And in our Western minds, the idea of teaching and discipling tends to be more transactional. Here's the information, you process it, you live your independent life. But when we come to the teachings of Jesus as Christians, we are not to be just learners of Jesus, we are to be imitators of Jesus to imitate him in each and every part of our life. In fact, the scriptures use that. The very name Christian, many of you probably know this, but the very name Christian was not a name that Jesus told his people to call themselves. Well, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, so why don't you call yourselves Christians? No, it was in the city of Antioch, sometime after the church had already spread, that people looked at these these believers in Jesus, who actually most early, most people believe the first thing that they called themselves was the way. You'd find that in some, uh, some of the, in the scriptures and also in ancient writings, that the very earliest name for Christians was the way. But that didn't really stick. 
What stuck was when some people in Antioch looked at them and said, boy, those people, all they talk about is this Messiah. All they talk about is this Christ. And all they do is, is uh, try to act like him. And do you remember so-and-so? Well, yeah, I knew them growing up. They have, they're totally different now. In fact, all they spend their time doing is being a little Christ. They just go around acting like little Christs all the time. Everywhere I see them. And so the people that looked at their lives said, you are little Christs or Christ imitators. Christ imitators. That's what a Christian is. It's not just someone who believes a set of teachings, but it's someone who has devoted their entire lives to become one with the one who taught. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be ye followers. Now, it, it doesn't just mean, I put your notes in brackets, imitators, because some translations, that is a perfectly good English translation of Greek word for follower. You could just as well in this passage say, be Im Paul says, be imitators of me, even as also I am of Christ. Paul said to his disciples, his followers in Corinth, he says, I want you to follow me in my life and imitate the way I live because I am imitating Jesus. How many of you have actually had some people in your life where you'd say, I looked at them and I saw a picture of Jesus, and not only was I following Jesus, but there was somebody that I tried to imitate in my life. You've had somebody like that in your life that you could just look at them and say, wow, not because they were so great, but because you watched a pattern of someone who was imitating Jesus in their life. Not perfect. We never substitute humans for the real, for the, the real thing, the, the, for Jesus. We imitate Jesus ultimately. But Paul says here, as I imitate Christ, imitate me. That's what a kingdom follower is. So the main thing I want you to understand today, and I'm trying to move fast because we're, I don't want the service to go too long this morning. So at the end of the first page, this, this is kind of the gist of the whole message. Never separate the teaching of Jesus from your identity in Jesus. Now, think about that. Process that this week. It's not about, especially for the young people, especially for the, the teenagers in here, young adults, if you've grown up in church, much of your Christianity is often, what do I learn about Jesus? What do I know about Jesus? That is foundational. You have to know about the one you are imitating. But it can't stop there. You cannot separate the teaching of Jesus from being like Jesus for the identity of Jesus. Now, you say, well, what exactly do you mean by identity in Christ? It's more than we can unpack this morning. I do want to invite you to come on Wednesday night as we're going to begin a whole Bible study around true identity in Christ. So if you can join us on Wednesday, we'll spend the next eight or nine weeks looking at this idea of, of not being who the world says we are, not being who we think we are, who our families think we should be, but who has Christ made me to be? We'll be speaking about that. But today, are you a follower of Jesus in the true sense of the word? Not just do you check off a list of, yes, I believe all these things, but in your heart, are you one with Christ? Well, let's look at a couple of these accounts, and let's, let's look at, I found, uh, in my study of the scriptures, I found four things I want to point out about kingdom following, about true following Jesus, truly following Jesus. So we'll start with the first passage that we read this morning, Matthew 8, 18 to 22. We're going to look at uh, four short excerpts from this passage. The first one we already read, the scribes come. The, scri the first scribe says, I'll follow you anywhere. The second person says, I need to go and bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Well, what can we learn? What can we learn 
there are many things, and if you were giving the message this morning, you could probably point something else out. But one of the things that really stood out to me is this. When it comes to following Christ, Jesus rejects the ambitious. Now, this turns, as many of the things in the kingdom of Jesus go, this turns a lot of things right upside down. A lot of our default uh, methods as human beings, ambition can get you far in life, can it not? If you're ambitious at your job, you can get promoted. If you're ambitious with your finances, you can build a nice nest egg. If you're ambitious with your physical health, you can build a physique. You can do all kinds of things in life if you'll put your mind to it. If you'll bring your skills and your talents and your abilities, it's like a law that's been built into nature. The problem is, in spiritual terms, the ones who come to Jesus seemingly with the most to offer have the least to gain. Because if we come to Jesus and say, well, I will, look at what the man says, look what the scribe, look at his confidence, his zeal, his enthusiasm in verse number 19. He says, Jesus, I'm going to go with you anywhere. Boy, he had big plans, didn't he? He was going to do a whole lot for Jesus. He was going to be the star pupil. When in actuality, Jesus, I believe here, is teaching him about his motives. That you are not in a position to follow me. You see, when we come to Christ, we don't come to Jesus with our abilities and our talents and our treasures and say, well, look what I have to offer you, Jesus. Look who I can be for you. In just a minute, I'm going to show you the contrast to that. But I want you to just get this. The ones who come with everything in their hand to offer him, all of their religious deeds, all of their intellectual abilities, all of their physical strength, all of their wisdom. Jesus says, maybe you're in this for the wrong reason. Is this about what you can do for me or what I can do for you? Also a question of priorities. The one who says, well, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you, but I have some things that I need to take care of in my life first. I have met people like this. I've probably been this person at time or two in my life. And so probably haven't you. We say, you know what? Let me just, let, once, I, once I get done with, once I get out of high school, then I'll be a little bit more serious about life and about God. And then, well, I, I mean, once I get out of college, then I'll, then I'll be a little bit more serious. Or once we get married... Or, you know what, it just life is just really busy now. I'm just starting this career. And once that happens, once that happens, then I'll be ready. Once, once uh, the, the, uh, we, we saw about like uh, giving uh, missionaries, you know, once I get these financial things in order, then I will take part financially. Once this happens, then I will do it. Jesus, just let me get this under control first. But with Jesus... The time for discipleship is when? It is now. It's today where we come empty. Say, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know where you're going to lead me. I am all in. I'll go anywhere. Now, if you study the Bible, the other disciples, like Peter especially, they also said some dumb things from time to time. Have you noticed that? They weren't perfect. That's not what we're saying, but they understood, they understood at their core that their life was now about Jesus. That was what life was. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they had to get done and their priorities. They followed Jesus now, today. If you would talk to Tom and Cindy Brewer personally, there, you just watch that story of their life. I mean, they had, they had accomplished half of their ministry before I was even born. I don't think they would look back and say, well, you know what? 
I wish we had been a little less serious about following Jesus. No regrets. So while Jesus rejects those that say, you know what, this is about me, it's about my plan, I'll do this on my terms, look what happens next. If you go to chapter 9, you'll see, remember, in the middle of all the miracles, there's these interactions with people who would, who would be disciples. Now, quite an opposite things, uh, quite an opposite account happens. While in Matthew 8, there's people coming to Jesus saying, oh, I'll follow you, Jesus. Sign me up. Where do we go? It's just the opposite in Matthew 9. Because if you look at Matthew 9 and verse 9, as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, of course, the great irony here. Whose book are we reading? There you go. You're paying attention. It's Matthew's book. He's telling his story right now. Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. Follow me. Now, again, he doesn't, that, that doesn't mean come to class for the day. It doesn't mean, uh, I'm going to give a talk by the seashore later. Why don't you come and join me? Follow me, Jesus says. Let go of your life and be completely dedicated to me. Follow me everywhere. Now, I said here, this, the second principle I've learned from this is that Jesus receives the rejected. He receives the rejected. Because if you just read over this, if you just read over this casually, you could miss that little statement in the middle of the verse where the activity that you find Matthew involved in. Where is Matthew and what is he doing? What's he do? Where is he? Sitting and what is he doing? At the receipt of custom. What does that mean? What's he doing? He's collecting taxes. He's collecting taxes. Now, I, it, it, there's still not a lot of love for those who dedicate their lives to working for the Internal Revenue Service. However, we all know we have a civic duty to pay taxes. Amen. We do. Christians ought to pay their taxes. However, in this day and age, the tax collectors were seen as especially undesirable, evil people. Because the tax collectors were Jews. Matthew was a Jew who betrayed his own people, teamed up with the Roman imperialists who were occupying their country, teamed up with them, and against his own people, he would collect payments to be sent to Rome on behalf of the oppressing government. To say that people hated them was an understatement. It's it, it just totally despised and hated people, these tax collectors, also known as publicans. Jesus, throughout his ministry, has interactions with several of them. Zacchaeus, the wee little man, we know that there are more because look at what it says. It came to pass as, you know, Matthew was there. He says, follow me. And Matthew, it says, and he arose and followed him. Now look at verse 10. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Boy, that must have been quite the crowd for dinner that night as Jesus sits there. And people walk by. Like, oh, did you hear Jesus is in town? Oh, yeah, he's over there. Go check it out. And people walk and they look. They're like, who are these people? What are they doing here? Like, not just one tax collector, but there's a whole bunch of them. And it says sinners. Now, everyone knew that, they, that everyone was a sinner. But sinners, it meant people that had a public reputation of not keeping the law of Moses. 
These were people who had ostracized themselves by engaging in immoral deeds and acts that were, that were, they were wrong. There's no, now, we got to be careful when we look at this passage. Should anybody have looked down their noses at the publicans and sinners? Should anybody have looked, not a trick question. Should, should anyone have looked judgmentally at these people? Of course not. However, did these people have much to be ashamed about in their lives? Of course they did. These, were, these people had done wrong. They had hurt others. They had sinned against God. These are, this is not the desirable crowd. And as wonderful a Christian and as non, non-judgmental as you might be, you wouldn't want them to move in next door. Let's just be real about who these folks are. You don't want them to move in next door. They wouldn't make good neighbors. So it's not just like, oh, everybody kind of looked, at, looked down at them. These are the same kind of people that in some ways society looks down on even today. And unfortunately, some Christians look down on people like that. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I can't go to church because that church is full of... Oh, you have heard that. That church is full of hypocrites. Now, I have not heard that any time recently at all about our church. I've never heard anybody recently, at least in, in recent knowledge, make that accusation. But I've heard that over the years about Christianity in general. Well, I could never go to church because that place is filled with hypocrites. Now, you might say, and what better place should those people be than in church? Now, that doesn't mean that it's not an excuse for Christian people. A, Christian people should, a church should be filled with sincere followers of Jesus, but we also ought to be a place that welcomes people whose lives are a mess, whose families are broken, whose past is less than stellar, whose behaviors are questionable, because those are the kind of people that Jesus embraced. And believe it or not, those are the people who can make the very best of disciples. Those are the people. Why? Because they don't come like the first crowd. They don't come like that scribe who says, Jesus, I'll go with you anywhere. I'll follow you anywhere. Matthew is more like, he didn't even dare. Obviously, he had interest in Jesus because when Jesus says follow, he just goes. But he would never have gone to Jesus and say, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. He's just sitting there doing his job that he probably at this point feels a little bit trapped in. Maybe he's filled with regrets and shame and how did my life end up this way? I thought it would turn out so well and it's not. And Jesus surprises him and says, Matthew, come follow me. Rejected sinners are loved by Jesus. Look at this, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, So, uh, Peter, James, why is your master eating with those tax collectors and sinners? They think they've got him. You know? They're like, if this is, this is who you follow, this is who you're going to imitate, this is the person you've given your life to, somebody that would eat with the tax collectors and the sinners... Now, fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave the disciples to have to answer this one on their own because he jumps in. And in verse number 12, in verse number 12, when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, I don't know if they, the, the Pharisees even quite got it. We understand what he's saying, right? He's saying, well, to the Pharisees, I guess there's nothing I can do for you. It's a little bit passive-aggressive. You guys seem fine. If there's nothing wrong with you, if you're healthy, can't help you. I haven't come, I haven't come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. Now, were the Pharisees actually healthy? No. No but they couldn't see how sick they were. You see, it's not that ambitious or capable people are just rejected offhand. 
it's that ambitious, capable, accomplished people often, not always, but often have a hard time seeing how much they really need Jesus. Jesus would say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now the disciples say, well, who could be saved then? Jesus says, well, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even a wealthy, accomplished person can be a follower of Jesus, can come to Jesus, but only if they're willing to realize just how sick and needy they are. And this is the point at which many people walk away from Christ. Why? Well, stick with me. Let me show you. What Jesus is teaching here is not only does he love sinners that others reject, but he's going to teach them that broken hearts are better than impressive resumes. He gives them that first statement about being healthy or sick, but now in verse 13, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, but go and learn what this means. And he quotes a passage that they would have known from Hosea, chapter number 6, and verse number 6. Hosea 6 and verse 6 says this, God speaking to a rebellious Israel, he says in Hosea 6, 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. To understand I will have mercy and not sacrifice, the sacrifice was the religious performance of the day. It's not so much living a sacrificial life for God. What he's talking about here is the literal act of sacrifice. That people thought that they, were, they had a good standing with God because they read the book of Leviticus, and the book of Leviticus said, make these sacrifices. And boy, every week and at the right times on the calendar and annually at the right moments, they would come and they would make the sacrifices. And they honored God with their sacrifices, but in their hearts, they were far, far away from God. Or they would honor God with the words that they said and with the religious things that they did, but in their hearts, they were far, far away from God. And Jesus says to the religious leaders, why don't you come back and tell me what you think this means? You're all concerned with me meeting with sinners and publicans? Think about this verse and come back and tell me what that means. Broken hearts are better than impressive resumes. Now, it's okay to have both. If you've got talents and abilities, and we've got some, some people in our church that just have all kinds of skills and talents and, and education, and it's just awesome to see how God can use that. It's okay to have those things. It's good. But don't let them keep you from having what God desires most, which is a broken heart before Him. Because repentance is the door to acceptance. Look at the last statement in verse 13. For I am not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. But to call them to what? Repentance. There's two sides to this. There's no virtue in just being unvirtuous. There's no there's no special status just because, oh, I guess I'm okay. I'm a pretty bad person. So that means, no. The point is, that should lead you to this very last important word. When we come to Jesus, we must come with hearts of, could you say that last word with me? Hearts of what? Repentance. That is a change of mind. That is a willingness for God to change my direction. This, that word repentance embodies the brokenness and the humility and the heart that God is looking for. But we admit to Him, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We say, yes, Jesus, we don't deserve to be disciples, but if you would accept us, we would repent of our sin, and we would give our lives to you. Because the publicans and sinners that Jesus spent time with, 
they didn't end up in the end as publicans and sinners, did they? They came as they were, willing to be changed. Be careful of a Christianity that says, come as you are, without any desire to be changed. Because yes, you come to Jesus just as you are. He will accept you at your very worst with the purpose of putting your life in a new direction, of changing you. Repentance. However, there are many people that have skills and abilities and money and talents and they don't find any need to repent of anything because, well, my life is pretty good. I think that's one of the main problems in Western countries today is we're so prosperous, we, we live longer than we've ever lived, and we take more vacations, and we live in bigger houses, and we drive better cars. Everything is just going pretty well for us. Pretty well. So why do we need Jesus? That's where repentance comes in. While the externals of my life may look good, I know that my heart needs to be changed by the Lord. And that's what he does, because thirdly, not only does Jesus reject the ambitious, receive the rejected, but he brings a complete transformation. If you read on, verse 14, there's an, it moves us right into a third account. Then came the disciples of John saying, now these were people that had been following John the Baptist. So they're in transition here to, to now they're listening to Jesus and they're a little confused and they say, why do we and the Pharisees spend a lot of time fasting? We give up food and we pray. But your disciples, they aren't fasting. Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? There's a wedding celebration going on, is what Jesus is saying. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. This is a time to celebrate. But there is a day coming when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Now, what he's showing them is, here, you know, you're following John the Baptist. They say, well, we spend all this time fasting. We do all this. Why aren't you doing this? If I could just boil a principle down here, Jesus is basically saying, don't, and I'll back this up with the rest of the scriptures that we'll see, but don't expect my disciples to take instruction from anyone but me. I will worry about when they fast and when they don't fast, about who they spend time with and who they don't spend time with. My disciples have one master. It's, so John has his way, fine. The Pharisees have their way, well, needs to be corrected. Jesus says, I am here. The bridegroom is here. It's a time for celebration. I will give them instruction for the future when that time is needed. Aren't you thankful that you don't give account for your discipleship to anyone but Jesus? I'd say that, that will free you from a lot of pressure and anxiety in your Christian life that ultimately you're not responsible, ultimately. Now, we have the local church and there's accountability. The Bible teaches all that, so I'm not diminishing it. But ultimately, you will not give account to your family or your church. You will give account to Jesus for your life. He is your master. He's your master. So, but, on the one hand, that's liberating. But on the other hand, it's sobering. Because while you will only have to give account to Jesus, you will have to give account to Jesus. But he gives a new way of living. Look at what's going to happen here. He's going to show them a new way of living, a new way of thinking. And he gives them this parable of the new wineskins and the new garments. How many of you remember that? You've seen that before. Look at what it says. He says this, verse 16. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it, fill it taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. And, and neither do men put new wine in old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. 
This is a little bit hard for us to understand because we don't do either of these things anymore. When's the last time you were like, oh, I think I'll sew a patch on that old shirt that I love so much? Maybe somebody in here did that. You're, you do it. Um, but most of us, sadly, we live in a, in a throwaway culture. But your clothes were very valuable in these days. And if you tore your jacket or your, your cloak and it had a tear in it, you had to fix it. Now, what you would not do is you would not go to the merchant and buy a brand new piece of material because everybody knows what happens after the material is washed. It, it shrinks. And so if you take that and you sew that brand new, that, that material hasn't had the, the... So what could happen is you sew up the hole, but then when it shrinks, it just pulls it all apart again, and what you thought you fixed, you've actually just made worse. Everybody understand the illustration now, what is his point? So you can't put new with old, but you also, you, you can't put old with new, but you can't put no, new with old, old, new, I'm lost, but you get what he's saying. It's the same thing with the wine. You press those grapes, and you get all that brand new wine, you better not put it in last year's bottle. But it wasn't a bottle, it was a, it was a, a wine skin. It was a skin from an animal. And last year's, last year's had been all stretched out by the wine. Well, how, how, did, the, how did the wine stretch it out? Through the fermentation process. They pour the wine in, the gases and whatnot that are released takes up more volume, and that wine skin, that bottle, as you see, that wine skin is stretched out with the new wine. But if you took brand, brand new, fresh wine, uh, and wine in the Bible could refer to either fermented or non-fermented. So when he says the new wine, this is wine that just came from the grapes. There's zero fermentation that has taken place. You pour that in last year's stretched out skin, and you fill that skin up, what's going to happen when that process, that natural process starts again? It's going to crack, it's going to splinter, that old dried out skin is going to let all of the wine be wasted and destroyed. So you can't, put, you can't put the new into the old. What does this mean? What is the point? Remember, he's dealing with discipleship. He's dealing with questions about John the Baptist, questions about the Pharisees. Well, they did it this way, we do it this way. Jesus says, no, you can't take my way. You can't take the way of Jesus and put it into your old way of living. You can't put the way of Christ and put it to your old way of thinking. It's the same for us, friends. You can't come to Jesus and say, well, I just kind of like my life the way it is, and I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus-y stuff in there. You know, we'll just put a little churchy stuff in, and, and uh, you know, I'll get, some, I'll, I'll, I'll get some new friends, and I'll do some devotionals, and I'll go to church every now and then. You can do that for a while, but eventually the old wide skin is going to burst and it's going to fall apart. It's not going to work. You can't add Jesus to your way of living. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Coming to Jesus is a full transformation, not just of, of what you do, but of who you are. The new doesn't mix with the old. And this is the point at which many people say, eh, Jesus sounded interesting, but I've just got too much of me that I want to hang on to. Now, if you only knew that the new that Jesus was going to replace you with, if you only knew how much better the new is, but that's the deception of the wicked one. That's the deception that says, oh, give up what I expect out of my life. It just seems so awful. When Jesus invites us, no, he says, I'm here to give you a life, not just life, but life more abundantly. This identity in Christ is so much better than anything you could experience on your own. But it takes faith. You have to believe that. And it's all made possible, finally, because Jesus went where no one could follow. And I, I, I'm out of time. 
But I do want you to think about this. There's one scene at the end of the life of Christ where Peter says that Jesus is just about to go to the cross. And Peter says, Lord, in John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him and said to him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but afterwards thou shalt follow. Does anybody know where Jesus was going at that point, where the followers of Jesus could never go? He was going to the cross. He went to the cross. You see, everything I've spoke about today, about total surrender, that as Christians our lives are about imitating Jesus, there is one thing that you could never imitate. There is one place you could never follow Jesus to, and that is to the cross where your sins and my sins were paid for. When Jesus went to the cross, he made the way for his followers. He made the way of salvation. You can't go to the cross. You can't, you can't, and you say, well, of course I can't go to the cross, but what this means is you can't be good enough to save yourself. You can't be good enough to make yourself a disciple. It took the forgiving, cleansing power of the blood of Jesus to open the door to discipleship. It took, the, it took the death of Christ on the cross and His resurrection that only He could accomplish to open the door for you to believe in Him, for you to be saved. You see, the last statement here this morning is this. Our discipleship, our discipleship begins... When we realize that Christ has accomplished everything on our behalf. It's on our behalf. Jesus did it for us. So then, we surrender our lives to Him in joyful obedience. I'll say it one more time in another way. It's the old cart before the horse analogy. Really important. A lot of people think, well, I will prove to Jesus how good of a disciple I can be, and then he will save me. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says, I come to Jesus incapable of being good enough for him. And then he turns me into a disciple. If you get those two reversed around, you've found religion, but you missed a relationship with Jesus. If you put what you do as a disciple in, in the front, then you miss the saving work of Christ. See, it's the cross and the gospel and faith in Jesus that does the work that brings us into this relationship with him, that saves us. And then... My life, the things that I do, the way I follow him, is not from a sense of earning or achieving, but it's from a sense of gratitude. It's from a sense of, Jesus, now I live for you because you accepted me like those sinners, like a publican. So the two questions are this. One, has that moment happened in your life? Has there been a time where you came to Jesus not with impressive deeds, but when you came to Jesus with all of your sin? You said, Jesus, I'm not that impressive at all. I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? I believe you died for me. I want to receive your forgiveness. That's salvation. That's being born again. That's the new life in Christ. Have you done that? Have you simply believed on Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you've trusted him? If you say yes well, then how's the discipleship journey going? That's the second application. But it all starts with the moment of belief, the moment of repentance. So let's, let's just think about that right now. With a, we're going to have a time of prayer, so if you could bow your heads with me and close your eyes. This is an important time, so I'd ask you to please be focused if you could, and if you don't have to move around, that would be great. I want us all to just think about these applications. Have you ever, first, first, most important thing, have you ever received Christ as your personal Savior? 
Have you ever come to him as a sinner admitting your need for salvation? If not, you can do that right now. Right now. You just, in a prayer, in your own words, I'll lead you in a prayer, but it could be in your own words, you just admit to God. You say, God, I can't save myself. I'm sinful. Lord, I know it. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I've done wrong. I know I've broken your law. I don't deserve your forgiveness. But I do believe that you love me. And I believe that you died for me. And I ask you to save me. I give you my life. If you've never done that, would you do that right now? Just in a quiet prayer to God, say, say something like this. Pray with me. Say, Dear Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. But I believe that you died for my sin and rose again. And I ask you to save me. Give me that new life that you promised. I believe, Lord. If you've done that today, you just started the journey of discipleship. If you're in the room and you say, Pastor Ethan, I know for sure that I've made that decision. Say, I've done that. Either today or another time in the past, I'm a follower of Christ. Well, how is your life of discipleship going? We're going to have a t quiet time of prayer right now. But spend a minute, as just the piano softly plays, just a minute, pray, to how is your discipleship going? How is your surrender to the Lord? Let's just have a quiet moment in prayer right now. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for how you speak to us. Help us to follow you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.